This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley coming up how does politics really work we'll speak to the authors of a new book explaining exactly that and we'll have our columnist panel melanie reed and james Forsyth. but first as it's friday let's take a look at what we learned this week Boris Johnson's under pressure to save Christmas with warnings we are short of butchers to make pigs in blankets. If only he knew someone who'd got time on their hands and experience of getting his way with a pig. I seem to remember the press release referred to the pig society. Talking of food, Keir Starmer revealed exclusively to Times Radio what he had for breakfast. Fresh fruit, a little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese. Peppered mackerel and a slice of Swiss cheese with holes in. All very odd for a vegetarian. I tried it, it was grim. In fact, the fish repeated on me so much, it's now got a series on Dave. For completeness, Ed Miliband was deep into porridge, not a bacon sandwich, and Andy Burnham spent the week wishing he was made of chocolate so he could eat himself. This is what I'm reduced to. (laughs) Andy Burnham's photographer. The Labour leader then gave his big conference speech. How long did it last, Keir? 17 months, 25 days and two hours. Did you know Keir Starmer had a dad and a mum? Extraordinary. Really marks him out. His speech went heavy on the parentals. My dad was a toolmaker. My dad was a toolmaker in a factory. In my dad. From my dad. My dad literally... Yeah, dad was mentioned 11 times, mum 15. I remember my dad working with a spark eroder, submerging metal in a liquid and using an electrical charge to shape it. What? I'd love to see the polling on how many votes that's going to shift. There was... Plenty more in the speech, though. Clean. Boris Johnson. Bit like driving a car with a driving instrument. The science of robotics and exoskeletons. Virtual reality. Labour. I could talk about this all day. Levelling up. Carpe diem. It's known in the trade as retooling. And then someone in the office was really pleased with himself for discovering that... The word loom, from which the idea comes, is another word for tool. And then he went and ruined it all with a joke about Boris Johnson's dad being a toolmaker. So instead of thinking about the dignity of manual labour, everyone was thinking about Stanley Johnson shagging. Still, how would you rate your speech overall, Keir? Good or outstanding. We'll soon find out whether voters agree once they finally got to the end of it. I'm glad we've cleared all of that up. Right, now it's time for our columnists. It's Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. 
Uh, let's talk about your column in the Times today, James, because it sort of looks ahead to the Tory party conference. Um, describing Boris Johnson as a gowlist. Explain yeah, what you I mean. Think, so I think the argument is that um, a bit like the, 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 the former French president Charles de Gaulle, he, he has this kind of gaullist view of uh, a vigorous state. He is kind of fierce defender of sovereignty. He believes in kind of British exceptionalism. And also like de Gaulle, He's a pragmatist. De Gaulle has something called he called the doctrine of circumstances, and and, and the, you know I think the interesting thing is that the Tory Party, Johnson is not an kind of ideological Thatcherite or an ideological small stater, and you can see that in his willingness to kind of raise taxes to spend more money on the NHS and and social care, and so I think that you know while you've got bits of a Tory Party having kind of a bit of existential angst, saying you know well, what what are we for, he I think is kind of more comfortable with this kind of slightly more gaullist, slightly more interventionist approach. And how do you think that will go down with the Tory party? Because it's quite a long way from what your hardcore Tory party members might agree with. I think it's one of those things that will go... That as, as long as he is winning, they will suppress their doubts about it. But I think if it looks like it isn't going to work electorally, then they'll turn very quickly. I think that's always been the, the kind of the, the, the danger for him with the approach. He has this very transactional relationship with his own party. And, and do you think it is a winning formulation on his, on his part? It, it essentially, uh, wearing a blue rosette while aping actually some of the interventionism of the of the left is that a winning offer? Well, it's a little bit like his strategy is very like Tony Blair, Angela Merkel's. You can sprawl across the centre ground, and you just mean that there's there's no space for the other parties to to go to. I mean, I think you know, in a way, one of Keir Starmer's problems is you know what the big thing that Gordon Brown did in 2002 was to raise national insurance to spend more money on the NHS. That that was what you know, and the whole argument at the time was that's what you elected a Labour government to do. When you've got a Tory government doing that, it doesn't leave very much space for the Labour Party. I think the, I think the big danger, and I think this is one of the things I've been most surprised by this week, was I thought that the petrol crisis would, would register in the polls in some way. You know, I mean, remember back in 2000, you know, even when the Tories were at their nadir, they went ahead of Labour um, when the pumps ran dry. And I have been surprised how little impact uh, the uh, petrol crisis has had on the polls. You know, poll for, for, for the Times this week had the Tory lead actually going up by a point. You know, there's another poll out today that again shows it's stable. I think it is... Uh, uh, but I do think that this autumn and how hard, you know, what they call in government, the, the effing crisis, so energy, fuel and food... Um, could be. Uh, I think it has a real, I think that is, that is the biggest danger of it, because if people think the government doesn't have a grip, that's when it could turn very quickly. What do you think about this, Melanie? Have you been struck? I mean, actually, if anything, me going to Brighton and getting a cold is a total waste of time, because it doesn't seem to have made the blindest bit of difference <laughs> to anything. Uh, the Labour Party completely failed to capitalise on the on the fuel crisis. We discovered the shock news that Keir Starmer had a mum and a dad. Uh, and that's that's about the the, the size of it. I, I was amused. I was uh, James. James's column made me smile. It's not often an, an op-ed column makes me smile, but James's did this morning because the the, the great the great Gaullist compared within two days. Uh, Johnson compared as a great Gaullist to the the trivial showman that uh, that Keir Starmer called him. Um, and the other thing I loved was the the effing crisis, energy, fuel, and food. I thought that was that was laugh out loud because it's it is extraordinary how um, that it's not yet cut through, um, and the the 
one of the good lines I thought in Keir Starmer's speech was that, you know, get Brexit done. No, it should be make Brexit work. And I think this this is this is now Johnson's big test. And as as James says, it's 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 grabbing the centre ground. But it's it's going to get worse because um, you know if we go into a chronic state with with COVID, chronic states are so much more difficult to manage than acute states. Uh, you know the, the the persistent problems that drag on, and and uh, that's when it's going to be a real test of of the. Of, of the situation. I was. Um, it's interesting the Brexit thing, isn't it, James? Because I'm reading again today about how we've got a shortage of butchers, and uh, Pretty Patel's under pressure to come up with some more visas for butchers so they can come and make our pigs and blankets. And she's resisting it because it would look like freedom of movement. And I just wonder if, if whether actually the pattern we see with the government is there is like a warning from industry where they say, no, pull yourselves together. Uh, this is Brexit Britain now. Uh, and it goes on and on and on for a while. And then eventually they have to give in. And instead, instead of saying making a virtue of Brexit, saying, look, thanks to Brexit, we can now control all these things. We don't have loads of people coming here who don't have jobs, but we can make sure that the jobs that need doing get done. That's the beauty of Brexit. Nobody seems to want to talk about Brexit on either side, actually, whether it's... Um, Conservative or Labour? I don't know what you think about that, James. So I think there's a slight game of chicken going on between business and government. The kind of government's argument is, well, have you tried offering higher wages for these jobs? Uh, and business saying, no, no, we, we, even if we offer higher wages, we won't get enough people. And government saying, well, why don't you offer the higher wages and find out? I mean, that, that you see that going on. I think yeah. that you, but I think you are undoubtedly right that, um, that I think the, there, there, there is a point of balance. It, it is quite clear that the haulage industry for years did rely on uh, cheap, uh, cheap labour. Um, it got away with not paying people very much, not doing much to improve their conditions um, and, and you know, their experience doing the job. Uh, and I think you know, there is a necessary corrective to see wages in that sector rise and conditions improve. But I also think you have to acknowledge that you can't do all that at once, right? You've now got, you know, I think the annual salary is now kind of 78,000 being offered for some of these HGV drivers, and, and there still aren't enough people. So you are going to have to take, a, I think you are going to have to have a, a more pragmatic approach on that front, because you can't do, you can't, you can't do this entire transition once. It, it's got to be gradated over time and and I, I think you know i thought simon wilson the, the boss of next was saying this i think this is I mean, a, a, a very something something very similar to what you were saying that you you can make a perfectly legitimate argument that you know this is brexit we're in control of our own immigration policy we are going to allow in a certain number of people but we are but we are also moving towards uh, towards a higher wage economy because you know, and I think this is a, a valid point. You know, you look at the tax credit system and the like. You know, there were jobs that were essentially being subsidised by government when companies should have been paying more. Uh, what do you think, um, Melanie? There is a sort of pro. Again, maybe it's quite a, a sort of interventionist approach. Actually, it'd be quite interesting if um, Keir Starmer had got up this week and said. Uh, we've now got these freedoms as a result of Brexit, and this is how we would use them to solve the mess that we're in. Yeah, it, it would have been very interesting um, because I think that the, there's something bigger at play here, and that is the, the the psychology of what kind of job you want. I mean, you, you you're doing this this great thing on five jobs this morning. 
but all the more dirty, earthy jobs that there are in this world. You know, abattoir workers, abattoir vets, an awful lot of menial farm labor. These are the things that people don't want to do anymore because the Brits, the Brits become squeamish and we've become divorced from the realities of where our food comes from. You know, this is what this is what decades of shrink wrapping have done to us. And uh, there ain't nobody that, that, that wants to cut up dead animals anymore. And you, this is one where you can't send the army in because, you know, <laughs> they, they couldn't do it either. So it's it's. Uh, it's very, very interesting. You know, what, what do you get a society that, that sort of loses the, the, the necessary skills that will always be there um, to, 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 to do that rotten job of, of, of that, that earthy job of getting um, from farm to plate? Because I suppose, but the, 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 as a country, then we need to sort ourselves out, don't we? Because we don't want to do the jobs, but we do expect pigs in blankets on the shelves at Christmas. Uh, we expect you know, food brought to us cheaply in chain restaurants. Uh, we expect, you know, the range of cheap meats you get in supermarkets and so on. Um, how, is that a job of government to change our attitudes? I don't know how we change those attitudes. I don't know how we change that either. I think it's that... I, I think I think it's, it's all about re-education, of course, and that takes a long, long time. Um, and I think the ecological movement can maybe help make it learn about our food a bit more and where it comes from. Um, I mean, to to be to be slightly to be slightly flippant about it, it, it may um, two things could happen. You, has Jamie Oliver got time to make a very quick TV program about how to make your own party food and, and pigs and blankets? And and I mean, also there's going to be a turn turn towards vegetarianism if there's, if there's no if you can't get turkeys and hams for christmas then you're going to have to have nut roast or or corn roasted corn do you fancy that for christmas i don't fancy that on any day of the week if i'm absolutely honest which i'm sure will upset certain people on the subject of education though um uh melanie there's an interesting story coming out of uh, st andrews university um it's going to test students for bias before they arrive yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It's a kind of virtue test. I mean, St Andrews is now Sunday Times um, elected it the, the the best university in in Britain now, and and students have to pass a virtue test and accept personal guilt. Um, it's sort of compulsory modules on sustainability, diversity, and good academic practice, and you have to agree to things like. Acknowledging your your personal guilt is a useful starting point in overcoming bias, and um, it's it's sort of spectacularly, as some as some as one of the Times commenters put, it's like um, it's like political political correctness gone metaphysical. <laughs> <laughs> James, what do you think about this? This feels like the sort of culture war stuff the toys would lap up at party conferences next week. Yeah, I think it's also I think it's a classic case of, of a kind of overcorrection. I think encouraging people to think about what it might, you know, to think about walking a mile in somebody else's shoes, how other people might feel 
is, is sensible. I mean, but trying, trying to teach it in this kind of formal way with right and wrong answers um, uh, strikes me as, as, as daft and 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 uh, kind of slightly not 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 to go too far, almost sinister, um, because people should be allowed to have their, their own answers to these questions and approaches, and we should just I mean, in, in general, you know, we should just all treat each other with kindness. It's just it's a really simple thing that should be encouraged rather than trying to rather than trying to kind of this kind of successor ideology stuff and also none of us would would claim that we were sort of fully rounded uh individuals at the age of 18 and actually part of the process of going away to university or going you know mixing with other people you'll you'll do quite a lot of your maybe changing your your mind about the world so instead of saying well you can't come in unless you conform to these things you just thought that they might have hoped that the process of being at their university over three years uh, might have done it instead. This well, like university, university is all about finding personal guilt, isn't it, and being bad. I mean, that, that's the whole point of going to university, getting away and, and trying stuff. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah. Anyway, you can read that online right now. I suppose I should ask you both, what, what's the worst jobs you've both done, James? I've been really lucky. I've actually enjoyed every job that I've done. I was just thinking this before. You know, I've been extremely fortunate. Oh, that was no fun at all. What about you, Melody? Oh, well, when I left school, I got a job in a vegetable packing plant. And my job was putting cucumbers in plastic bags. And all these uh, sort of vulgar Lancashire ladies were going, ooh, look at the size of that one, and sort of taking the mickey out of us, us naive little kids. So it was very, very... Um, you spent the whole day blushing. It was horrible. That does sound good. I suppose that all that tells us, James, is your worst job is still yet to come. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's something to look forward to. James Forsyth and Melanie to read there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how does politics really work? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now my chat with Tim Bale and Paul Webb about how politics really works. Now, obviously, sometimes we get caught up in the day-to-day of politics, but... One of the things we try to do is explain how politics actually works or doesn't. From the parties who dominate to the voters who keep switching sides and why people who become paid up members 
are a bit weird, even for their own parties. We're here to help us pick through it all. Are the authors of the new edition of the book, The Modern British Party System? Uh, joined by them both. Uh, we've got Tim Bale. Morning, Tim. Morning. And Paul Webb. Morning, Paul. Hello there. Um, before we, we dive into the, the, the things uh, that we're going to try and explain, uh, what's the idea behind the book, Tim? Is a sort of collection of uh, analysis of how, how British politics actually works? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the second edition of a book that um, Paul wrote um, some time ago. So it's a, a big update to that. And what we really try and do is get a sense of the kind of functions that uh, political parties perform in our uh, democratic system. You know, they are absolutely essential. Uh, we look at, you know, some of the ways they go about persuading people to join them, persuading people to vote for them. Uh, we look at the insides of those political parties as well. Uh, how do they actually organise themselves? How do they fund themselves? Uh, and then we, we, you know, more broadly, I guess, uh, look at some of the problems they've had over the years, and particularly with regard to holding on to voters, to holding on to members, uh, and uh, actually the, the loss of public trust in political parties, which is really quite profound. Uh, they've never been massively popular, but they're probably more unpopular than they've ever been right now. And yet the paradox is they're absolutely essential to democracy. There's really no country in the world that can call itself a democracy that doesn't have political parties. Uh, and Paul, um, as Tim was saying, it's, it's an update on your original book. We'll also pick through some of the issues in a moment. What, what, any major changes from the first one? Something that seems like this was a fact about British politics, which is no longer the case? Um, I would say, in a sense, really not, not really a major change, only sort of more movement in a similar direction in the okay. sense that, you know, one of the stories that, that um, I laid out in the first um, edition of the book, which came out 20 years ago, believe it or not, was the way in which the party system really had started to change around about the 1970s and it started to become basically a more fragmented, more multi-party phenomenon. And really, we've seen more of that, I think, with, you know, the further... I mean, you, you mentioned at the beginning... Uh, of the, the hour here that uh, there's news about the Green Party. So we've seen kind of the, the growth of the Green Party, of course, the incursion of things like UKIP and the Brexit Party from time to time and north of the border, the SNP. So, I mean, that's one of the, the major stories, I think, that we've continued to develop in the book. Well, in fact, I think that's... Uh, uh, we're going to pick through now five things you really need to know about how the system works. We can work it out. And you've touched on it there, actually, Paul, uh, the decline of the two-party domination. And, and actually, if you looked at sort of headline uh, polls, you know, it's still the Labour Party and the Conservative Party who, who dominate in elections. But actually, if you... And people think, well, they're, you know, when people talk, talk about a two-party state or a one-party state. But actually, if you go back to, what, the 60s, it's a very different picture of today's politics to how it looked back then. Yeah, I mean, it genuinely was far more two-party then. So, for instance, if you go back to 1964... Labour and the, uh, the Conservatives came first or second in over 90% of all the constituency contests in the general election held that year outside of Northern Ireland. But by 2019, um, they were first or second in only 70 uh, or so percent uh, of the, the seats. Uh, their average vote share um, had stood at over 90% um, between 1945 and 1970. But it's fallen to less than three quarters for subsequent elections. 
Um, and, and so, you know, these, there are other things that one could um, cite as well to elaborate this, but they all amount to the same thing, really, that we've seen from the 1970s, really from the 1974 elections onwards. That's when things began to obviously change, because that's the election at which you see, first of all, the Liberals, the old Liberal Party, standing candidates in far more seats and winning a higher percentage of the vote across the UK as a whole. But it's also the election at which the Scottish and the Welsh nationalists begin to to make noticeable headway, really. I suppose, Tim, that's one of the key things, isn't it? Is it? It's not just the, the big headline figures of uh, the, the total vote share of the Labour Party and the, and the Conservative Party. It's the fact that in different parts of the country, different parties dominate or take votes off each other. So you have to, whether it's the Lib Dems going head-to-head with the Tories in the South West or the SNP going head-to-head with Labour in Scotland or Plaid in Wales, uh, uh, UKIP or, you know, UKIP Brexit Party, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it that sort of soup of different uh, um, contests happening in different parts of the country is a very different world from 90% of the seats essentially being a straight red-on-blue fight. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why, although, you know, political scientists and, and pundits are very keen to talk uh, about this thing called swing, you know, Labour will need X percent swing in order to win, you know, one seat majority next time around, etc. It's actually a very difficult concept to carry on with, because, as you say, you know, although the book is called the modern British party system, in a way, we could call it the modern British um, party systems. Uh, you know, you have uh, a completely different kind of electoral uh, environment in Scotland and in Wales and, of course, uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and actually, increasingly, even in England, you see some very big differences. So that, you know, a, a, an election result which previously um, would have delivered a clear majority for one party over another uh, simply doesn't do that uh, anymore. Uh, and we saw this actually in, in the 2017 election where, um, you know, both parties actually did quite well. Um, but, you know, the Labour Party was still quite a long way behind the Conservative Party. But of course, the Conservative Party couldn't form a government either. Um, so it really is a very, very different ball game now to what it was, you know, back before um, the 1970s. And the other big change, I think, that we see from the 1970s onwards, and it's something that we've talked a lot about now as if it's never happened before, is, um, you know, the, the gradual erosion of the, of the class base of both of uh, the, the main parties. Um, so that, you know, by the 2019 election, we see the Conservative Party actually doing better in some senses among working class voters uh, than, than the Labour Party. But you could already begin to see that happening actually in, in, in 1970, in the 1970 election, uh, and from then on. Uh, Paul, does this mean that basically national opinion polls are a complete waste of time these days? That apart from telling us, you know, if, if the Tories are down five points this time next week, well, we can work out they've had a less, you know, they haven't had a good week and they've gone down in some people's estimations. But they don't really tell us anything about what might happen in a in a general election. You know, if you've got the SNP polling 4% at a UK-wide poll, well, that doesn't tell us anything about whether or not Labour's making any inroads back in Scotland, uh, you know, the SNP dominance and whatever. Should, should we just ignore national polls, you think, Paul? Um, no, I wouldn't go quite, quite that far. Apart from anything else, we rely rather a lot in the book on opinion poll data. So it would undermine the selling capacity of the book if I, I went that far. But actually, I, I don't believe that anyway. Um, but what I do accept is that, you know, it's much harder now to read off than used to be the case at one time. 
um, from opinion polls, what what the complexity of, of the, the final outcome is likely to be in terms of parliamentary representation. I mean, accordingly, um, the pollsters, um, political scientists have come up with more sophisticated methods. Um, there used to be a thing, a complicated, well, a, in a sense, a relatively straightforward kind of mathematical thing called the cube law, which back in the 1960s <clears throat> enabled um, political scientists and pundits to predict pretty accurately what a, a change, a swing between the two major parties in terms of their vote would mean in terms of parliamentary representation for them now. Because of the multi-party fragmented nature of things now, that's almost impossible to do. So political scientists have come up with a thing called multi-level regression with post-stratification, which is, it doesn't exactly trip off the tongue, so normally we just say MRP, but is a, it is a kind of sophisticated statistical way of trying to figure out what all these different poll um, results imply in terms of actual commons representation. Um, and also, I, I suppose more generally, I'd say that whilst the polls have taken a bit of a slating sometimes in recent years, saying with people sort of, I think somewhat too easily saying the polls got it wrong again, I don't think that's necessarily true. It sort of depends which polls you look at. And, um, and I think you have to look at the, the kind of the direction of polls over time. There's always a you know, potential for a rogue poll to get something completely wrong. Um, but also... The tre I mean, trends are better. Trends are better to, to focus yeah, on. Exactly good. Well, yeah, Good. So that's, num that's number one, uh, the, the, the decline of a, a sort of two-party uh, politics. So we're picking through. Uh, how does politics actually work? We can work it out. It's just a good excuse to play the Beatles, let's be honest. Uh, number two, then, British voters are not partisan. This will come as a huge shock to Tim, uh, to anybody, Tim, uh, on Twitter, uh, where everyone is incredibly partisan. So uh, what do you um, explain this, that voters are not partisan? Right. Well, I mean, when the British election studied back, uh, studies started back in, in uh, 1964, actually, you got nearly half of all respondents saying that they were very strong supporters of one party uh, or another. Uh, that was 44% of people said they were very strong partisans. If you look in 2019, that figure's fallen all the way to just 16%. Um, so, you know, we've had a really, really um, big drop in the extent to which uh, people are prepared to identify with particular um, political parties. And, and that's true um, both of the Labour and the Conservative Party. Right now, uh, those who say you know, they identify with those parties, that's only about a quarter of the electorate each. So that means that the, the parties really can't rely anymore on uh, an obvious core vote, if you like, uh, or their core vote anyway is much, much smaller than it used to be. Uh, and as a result of that, or partly as a result of that, voters are much more volatile than they used to be. So they switch a lot more between elections than they ever used to. It used to be, you know, fairly uh, predictable, but it's no longer that predictable because people are much more willing to kind of pick and choose uh, between elections. So to put it another way, between a quarter and a third of people switched parties between each election when you look at 2015, when you look at 2017 and 2019. So we're much more footloose, if you like, uh, than we used to be. And not only that, uh, we also make up our minds uh, much later than we ever used to. 
Uh, if you look uh, again back at the, the 1960s, um, then, you know, the, 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 the people who, who made up their minds during the campaign uh, was only about 10 percent. But now it's about 30 percent. So about a third of people nowadays make up their minds during the campaign rather than beforehand, which means that campaigns, you know, theoretically anyway, are a lot more important than they used to be. And it makes it much more uh, interesting for those of us who report on it if it's not a foregone conclusion uh, as well. And uh, we're bringing you the top five things you need to know about politics. And now it's time for number three. We can work it out. We can work it out. So we've got uh, multiple parties to deal with. People uh, are happy to chop and change uh, between parties and make up their minds very late in the day. But, Paul, party, the parties themselves are also not particularly united, making them even more unpredictable. No, I think that's that's probably true. I mean, that there have always been bouts of a kind of mad factionalism within actually both of the major parties going right back through history. Um, but something that's really well documented by political scientists who pour over the details of, of commons divisions is that since the 1970s, again, a lot of things date from about 1970 in terms of the, the change and the flux in the system. But since that time, We've seen clear evidence that there have been more and more instances um, of backbench MPs rebelling against the party line. And that really culminated. Well, I mean, actually, in the 1970s, there was a very bad experience for the, the Callaghan government in that sense. But of course, more recently, it's culminated in the experience of Theresa May, who actually suffered thir over 30 defeats in the House of Commons between 2017 and 2019. And even Boris Johnson had a, a dozen quick defeats, so to speak, until he held the, the December 2019 general election. It's been a bit smoother for him since then, which isn't to say that he doesn't have trouble with some of his backbenchers. But of course, he's got a rather larger majority now, so he doesn't very often um, suffer actual defeats in, in Parliament. And, you know, this kind of internal division that extends sometimes outside of Parliament to the, the grassroots of the parties as well. I wonder to what extent, Paul, this is connected to what we were just talking about. If voters are more volatile, then maybe MPs have to work a bit harder to keep their local voters on side because they're not just going to vote for them regardless just because they've got the red or blue rosette on. And so as a result, it has to be that sort of disconnect that MPs will do what, you know, will do them good come the next election rather than what their party leaders telling them to do? I think that's that's true. I think sometimes there are tensions between what the local constituents uh, seem to want and what the party leadership might want. But more generally, I would say that it's, you know, po that politics um, has been affected over the course of the last, you know, if we take a really long-term perspective here, over the course of the last half century by the emergence of new kind of policy and ideological dimensions around green politics and feminism and race and social liberalism versus conservatism. And of course, relations, you know, Britain's uh, position in the world. So the relations between UK and Europe, for example, and so on. And not all of these things fit very neatly into the old boxes of two party politics. And I think this is a large part of the reason why we start to see new parties emerging and then kind of internal instability within the existing parties as well. Things just don't fit quite so neatly as used to be the case. And I think, can yeah. I just add there? I mean, I think yeah. that there's also an extent to which actually in very recent years, the growth of social media has, has made a difference because I, I think it's possible now for MPs <laughs> to become, if you like, kind of legends in their own 
lunch times <laughs> on Twitter, uh, and therefore you know be less concerned perhaps about you know slowly and grindingly making their way up through the ranks uh, by showing loyalty. Uh, to ministers. So I do think that makes a difference. And there's also, I think, a, a big difference in the way that House of Commons organises itself in that the, the select committees now are uh, so much more kind of high profile and, and powerful and, and independent than they used to be, which means there is, if you like, an alternative route outside the, the kind of uh, traditional promotion uh, through loyalty route that, that MPs used to take. You know, it, nowadays, if you're not in favour with the leadership, then you can become uh, a select committee chair and you will be interviewed on Times Radio by Matt Shawley, probably more than the very earnest Minister for Paperclips. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't like the minister for paper clips coming on at all. If we can help it, right? So that's um, uh, that's that's why party M- MPs might be a bit uh, uh, rebellious. Uh, now let's t- go to number four. We can work it out. We can work it out. Now, this is a great one, Tim. That I'm looking forward to. Where exactly are the bulk of UK voters on the political spectrum? Oh, well, uh, this is a really, really interesting one because so many people uh, assume things about, you know, where the electorate are, um, partly from, you know, who wins the election. So, for example, if a right wing party wins the election, um, you know, people assume that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of voters uh, actually prefer their economic prescription. Whereas if you do uh, cluster analysis on the, uh, the British electorate, you actually find that the bulk of people are people that we would classify as uh, authoritarian left. So in other words, they're, they're, they're quite, if you like, socially conservative on things like uh, immigration and on law and order, uh, but they're quite uh, left wing when it comes to thinking about the balance between, on the one hand, the state uh, and the market. So, you know, if, if a party is, is looking to hit the, you know, the jackpot electorally, then it needs to be to the right of centre, if you like, on, on, on immigration and law and order, putting things very broadly, and slightly to the left of centre uh, when it comes to the economy and, and public services. And in a way, you can see that this is why uh, New Labour was such an effective political force, because it, that was exactly where it tried to place itself. And you can see, obviously, that Boris Johnson is in some ways doing exactly uh, the same thing. The the worst place to be for a political party, if you look at where the electorate is anyway, uh, is uh, what you might call the kind of the, the liberal right. In other words, people who are socially very liberal uh, and economically uh, very right wing. There, there are very few people uh, in there uh, in that particular quadrant. So uh, as I say, I think Boris Johnson is doing exactly the right thing. Um, if uh, we're talking simply about, you know, his, his uh, ability to appeal to the electorate in terms of where he's placing himself now. That's fascinating. So that's, that's where the voters are, which brings us to number five. We can work it out. We can work it out. Yeah, I try to work out how politics actually works. Uh, finally, Paul, uh, even uh, there's the, a the disconnect between party members and the parties they're members of. Um, what sort of, what sort right. of weirdo joins a political party, basically? <laughs> well, I mean, socially, um, the people who join party members uh, across all of the parties actually tend to be quite middle class and white and to some extent, you know, preponderantly male as well um, and educated. 
Um, not all that many of them are hyperactive within their local parties, it has to be said. Um, and, and in fact, probably there's been a slight decrease in the amount of active activity across the course of the last two or three elections. <clears throat> that might well be because there's an element of kind of election campaign fatigue, I think, amongst them. Because what what the research has shown consistently over the years is that for all that there is inevitably um, from the media a focus on what the leaders are doing during election campaigns, uh, and rightly so, it's nevertheless still important what happens at constituency level. And for constituency campaigns, actually local volunteer activists from the grassroots are, are still critically important. They can make, particularly in marginal seats, they can still make a significant difference to outcome. So, you know, we find that, that most party members are kind of sleeping party members, are not that active, but there is a smallish hardcore who are really important to these campaigns. And they've done a little bit less across, you know, all of the, the main parties over the last few elections. Um, but what they do is still important. Uh, what about you, you, Tim? What do you make of the sort of people who join party, uh, actually join political parties? Yeah, I mean, they are socially very uh, unrepresentative of the country. Um, and, and this can cause problems for political parties, obviously. I mean, the Conservative Party... Uh, membership is, you know, much older uh, than the, the country, and that might perhaps therefore have an influence on the Conservative Party's policy. Because although they don't get any formal say, they're continuing sort of pushing their MPs in in one particular direction. And likewise for the Labour Party, I mean, their membership is much more socially liberal. Uh, than uh, the the country as a whole, and indeed Labour voters. And again, if that has an impact on uh, the policy of the Labour Party, that can put the Labour Party uh, outside, if you like, the sort of zone of acceptability as far as voters are concerned. And, and we've seen this week, you know, in the Labour Party conference, a lot of talk about issues which for most voters don't really seem to make very much difference. But for Labour Party members who are much more socially liberal and therefore into this kind of identity politics, uh, they are extremely important. And that can leave the Labour Party looking, well, a little kind of odd to most people. And that doesn't help it electorally. Uh, go on then, because both of you, I know that the book is packed with uh, uh, interesting f facts and figures and statistics. If uh, if listeners want to impress their friends with a, an interesting fact about the state of British politics, what, what's your favourite one you'd like to wheel, wheel out at the right sort of dinner parties? I'll let you go first, Paul. <laughs> that puts me on the spot. Um, I think probably I'd point to some of the things that, um, you, you know, actually, in a sense that Tim alluded to um, right at the beginning of, of the, this podcast, when um, he mentioned the fact that parties become even less popular um, than used to be the case. And that there is a lot of evidence from things like the, the annual audits of political engagement that the Hansard Society runs that particularly in the wake of the whole crisis around Brexit, that the uh, the sort of popular disillusionment with political parties and even the willingness to kind of see party politics um, replaced by more authoritarian forms of politics was quite alarming, actually, um, how far it was there. Now, things may settle down over the course of a period of time, but we do know that there is that that level of disillusionment. And yet... If you ask people, you know, if you ask them what they think of parties, they might say, I don't like them very much. But if you ask them if they think parties are necessary for our um, political system, then the overwhelming 
overwhelming majority will still say, well, yes, actually they are, albeit grudgingly. What about you, Tim? Your top, your top dinner party fact? Uh, well, actually, I mean, there, there's, there's all sorts of factoids in here, but uh, I'll, I'll just give you one that might interest your, your readers. And this is the um, support uh, of uh, uh, people according to which newspaper they read. So in 2019, the Tories won 76% of mail and express readers, 72% of telegraph readers, 68% of sun readers, and just 44% of people who read The Times. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.